0: every reason to believe that uh, uh, we will have a great relationship and that we're going to go back to a winning basic formula and being Bracket championship to New York. And uh, you've got to go with a winner in order to get a winner. And as you look at the records of the various managers, there are only two or three managers in baseball today active who have winning records from the time they started managing. And Alfred Martin is one of those fellas. I've had a lot of long talks with George. A lot of you guys are going to wonder how we're going to get along. Like, I'm sure you're going to ask me that question later on. Well, we've straightened a lot of things out. They'll... Uh, for instance, I'll be handling all the trades. Well, what do you mean? Uh, there'll be no phone calls in the dugout. What do you mean? That is not... No, that's not right. <laughs> I'm handling the trades. That isn't the way we say it, I have the right to call you in the dugout. Do- <laughs> that's uh, not the way it's going to be, George. You're damn right it is. If you don't like it, you're fired. You haven't hired me yet. <laughs> wetland one more time sad and here comes the 2-2 pitch to edgar martinez down the fastball swung on into the deep center field bernie williams goes back in. And- atop the Robinson Gearing Studio Complex and straight out of God's Country, Holly's Island, South Carolina, this is Backwards K. And now here's the host of the show, Jake Robinson. Good moment baseball universe, it's your boy, half man, half podcast machine. Jake the Snake Robinson from the Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network and this is is Backwards K, where we collect ballplayers and their stories. Now, today we will be talking about someone who never played on the major league level, but his impact on the game will be felt for future generations to come for sure, from his wealthy, obscure rise in the Cleveland shipping building industry to constructing a $5.25 billion Baseball empire with the most storied franchise, the New York Yankees. So before we do it, please remember to like, comment, subscribe, rate me as you see fit. It helps for the growth of the show. I'm committed to the growth of this show. And I'm going to be honest with you. I will never charge my fans like a lot of these other podcasts. I'm never going to Patreon you. I'm not going to crowdsource you for a dollar a month. I'm not going to sell you mugs and coasters like I'm Gene Simmons of KISS. And I will never ever go on strike. I'm just going to give you free good content. And all I ask instead is that you interact with the show through the likes, comments, subscriptions, and downloads. And I'll keep the show free and consistent forever. Uh, If you want to contact me about the show, you can text me, or I'm sorry, email me at backwardskpod at gmail.com. So, now that we got all the pleasantries out of the way, let's get into it. George Steinbrenner, here on Backwards K, where we collect ballplayers and their stories. So, to get started on the George Steinbrenner story arc, uh, you need to understand his uh, lineage and what kind of stock he comes from. The Steinbrenners have always been a hardworking, ambitious family of German descent. And from all the research I did, the Steinbrenner's legacy in America begins with George's great-grandfather, Henry. In 1905, Henry and his son George, who would eventually be the boss's grandfather and the source of his namesake, uh, Henry and his son George started Kinsman Marine uh, Transit on the shores of Lake Erie and Cleveland, Ohio. They were an upper class family who were among the first tenants of the 17 story John D. Rockefeller building in downtown Cleveland. The Steinbrenners were a shipping family. They were making a living from transporting ore and grains all over the Great Lakes. And it had become this family legacy built to pass down through the generations. So the grandfather, who's now running the terminal, had a son who would go on to be George's father, Henry. And Henry was groomed to continue this path laid out for him. But there was a moment in his life where it could have went in a different direction. And I talk about these little butterfly effect moments all the time. Henry had attended Culver Military Academy in Indiana. And then the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. And he was a world-class hurdler. George's father. I mean, legit, no shit. He was a world-class hurdler and a 1928 Olympic hopeful in Amsterdam. But his father would be given an ultimatum by his then-girlfriend, soon-to-be wife, Rita, George's mom, told his father, forget this Olympic nonsense. Take your family business and begin a life with me if that's what you want. And that's what Henry did. Eventually he and Rita would marry. And on July 4th, 1930, George Michael Steinbrenner was born. And eventually the family would expand as George would have two sisters, Susan and Judy, George adored his father, and he never wanted to let him down. And his father, Henry, was tough. He instilled this hard work ethic in his son. So at this time, the country is mired in economic collapse. It's the Great Depression. The Steinbrenners lived comfortably. But that didn't stop the patriarch, Henry, from teaching young George lessons in life about how to obtain wealth and how to maintain it. So, when George is around eight or nine years old, his father bought him some hens and the future boss could be seen selling eggs door-to-door seven days a week. Clearly, George's father is grooming his son for all the challenges and responsibilities he would face running the Kinsman Marine Transit. I'm just, in my mind, I'm, I'm <laughs> knowing what I know now, I'm just picturing a young seven, eight-year-old George Steinbrenner on my stoop trying to sell me eggs. I mean, that's, that's funny. At age 14, George follows in his father's footstep, and he attends his father's alma mater, the Culver Military Academy. While there he plays football, basketball, and he also runs hurdles and track, just like his old man, but he's, he doesn't have the skills of his father. So he's playing football, basketball, runs track. The obvious question is, did George Steinbrenner ever play baseball in school? And the answer is no. By his own admission, he, he was horrible. He, he, he would have traded himself probably. He did once recall racing Olympian Harrison Dillard and he said, I I ran against him but I never saw what he looked like because all I could see was his ass. So upon graduating from Culver, he is denied admission to Harvard. A fact that he would gleefully point out to the Harvard Business School graduates of 1979. So he opts to attend Williams College He was an average student. He was a social butterfly with a lot of extracurricular lifestyle activities. Uh, He was halfback on the football team. He ran track. He played piano in the band. And he also served as the sports editor of the school newspaper, The Williams Record. And it is during this time writing and editing of the school paper that George realizes the power of media, how you can control the narrative, and it's a skill he would deploy in his future. Upon graduation, he joins the United States Air Force. He's stationed at Lockbourne Air Force Base in Columbus, Ohio. After his honorable discharge in 1954, he did uh, graduate study at the Ohio State University, uh, earned a master's degree in physical education. So it was in Columbus where George fell in love with Joanne Zieg, and he married her on May 12, 1956, and they were going to have four children, Hal, Henry, Jessica, and Jennifer. In July of 1962, Joanne would file for a divorce, but uh, they reconciled. The suit was dropped September 22nd of that same year, and she remained by his side until the day he died. In the fall of 1955, George would take on an assistant coaching job with Lou Saban and the Northwestern football team, and it was there that George learned many valuable lessons. But the one lesson he really learned was even if you had the best intentions, you can't build a team without the proper materials. After a winless season, both Saban and George Steinbrenner would be fired in favor of R.O. Pesagian. <laughs> I think it's funny, uh, ironically, that uh, Saban would serve as one of the front office types for George and the Yankees in 1981. It's just so funny because, I mean, he was going through general managers like crazy between 73 and 90, 18 years. He went through 13 GMs, 19 managers, and one of them was Lou Saban. I, I, I don't know. I just find that kind of weird. George takes one more stab at coaching. He goes to Purdue, and he's going to give it a shot before his father's long shadow, his large shadow, consumes him. And ironically, just as George's mom had done to his father before the 1928 Olympics, Henry sat his boy down and had a talk. And he basically told him, look, I brought you up to take care of the family business, not to coach sports. So, I mean, George who adored his family, especially his father. He came back to Cleveland to secure his birthright, and he took his place as the treasurer of Kinsman Marine Terminal. And Cleveland's location on the Cuyahoga River, it feeds into Lake Erie, and it was optimal for transports, and it was a major reason why John D. Rockefeller founded Standard Oil there. For some time in the 19th century, Cleveland was the largest oil refining city in America, and the company, at the behest of George, they began to focus on shipbuilding, commuting and transporting and shipping uh, grains instead of these ores. And george got a little success now. He's now the man about Cleveland. He's hanging out at the pewter mug where he would hold court with fellow industrialists and tycoons like Art Modell and Nick Milady. The company was doing well. George had a beautiful wife and expanding family, but still, something is missing. Sports is still calling George Steinbrenner. In 1961, George makes his first foray into sports ownership when he acquires the Cleveland Pipers, an international basketball league team. And it's ironic, he hired a black man to be his coach for the basketball team a whole decade before Frank Robinson would break the MLB manager's color barrier for the Cleveland Indians. A guy's named John McClendon, successful coach at historically black colleges. He was actually a protege of Dr. James Naismith, the inventor of basketball. And George would go on. He would sign Ohio State superstar Jerry Lucas. He would also try unsuccessfully to lure Lucas's teammate, future Boston Celtic icon, John Havlicek. Havlicek stole the ball. And the boss, he cut his teeth that year as a sports team owner. And he began to build on his profile as the owner he would become. The Pipers would win the 1961-62 IBL Championship with George Manning the ship. But the always ambitious boss... This isn't good enough for him. He's got designs on merging into the NBA. Now, unfortunately, George couldn't come up with the 250 grand entrance fee. And it's important to note that 250 grand in 1961 is roughly 2.3 million dollars today. And I can only imagine it was probably one of the last times that the boss couldn't come up with 250k or uh, 2.3 million dollars, for that matter. It's also interesting to note that Steinbrenner and McClendon, their relationship it fell apart. He was either fired or he quit, depending on who you asked, and that's certainly a harbinger of things to come with his ownership career in New York. The league folded, took the Pipers, their championship banner with them, peaced out. And the deal to merge into the NBA, it quickly disintegrated, and George was actually excoriated in the press for poisoning the well for pro basketball in Cleveland. Now, the Cleveland Cavaliers, they would open for business a decade later, and they would really, they would be owned by his friend from the pewter mug days, Nick Maletti. So, the competitive George, he, go ba- he goes back to the family business. He's licking his wounds. His father retires in 1963. And George scrounged up all the loot and cash he could find in his couch, and he bought his dad out. And he was now the alpha male of the Steinbrenner Pack. Four years later, he forms a consortium of, of investors. And they bought Amship. American Shipbuilding Company. Now 15 years prior. They were the largest shipbuilders. On the Great Lakes. The company was in a spiral. Uh, no private corporation. Had built a ship. On the Great Lakes. Since 1959. So George is taking a gamble here. And he realizes that you know, we're going we're gonna to evolve here and we're going to start building ships. So, Steinbrenner and AMSHIP, they begin lobbying in Washington, D.C. I mean, no bullshit lobbying. They're, they're rubbing elbows with the Nixon administration and the Democrats who ran Congress. He's in there. He had incredible fundraising prowess. And George has the ability to meet people in the middle with differing perspectives to get a deal done. (laughs) It's crazy. He was even mentioned as a possible head of the DNC or even like a cabinet member on Ted Kennedy's staff if he had won the presidency. Now imagine that. The boss almost single-handedly was instrumental in seeing the Maritime Act of 1970 pass which procured tax breaks and other incentives for Great Lakes uh, shipbuilders and carriers and it ultimately led to $300 million a year in construction for ships on the Great Lakes. Within five years Steinbrenner had taken his grandfather's company to new heights. And now with AmShip in his pocket, he watched his sales and his profits double. And with his family's legacy reaching new heights, unimaginable heights, George still has to scratch that inch to buy a sports team. He just wants one more shot at it. So, in 1961, Cleveland's Indians general manager, Gabe Paul, informed his friend, George, that the tribe were for sale. The team owner, uh, Vernon Stouffer, who owned Stouffer's microwave dinners, he was in serious financial distress, and he agreed to a sit-down with Steinbrenner. However, Stouffer was a heavy drinker, and he had an irrational dislike for George because of the way George had supposedly supposedly treated his son when he was a shareholder with the Pipers basketball team. Nonetheless, George would form this ownership group, along with Indian slugger, the Hebrew Hammer, Al Rosen. And though the two would never exchange Christmas cards, George had a suitcase full of cash, which had to look tempting to the financially crippled Vernon Stouffer. And George was clearly leaking information to the Cleveland Plain Dealer and the Cleveland Press. He's doing what George does, promoting, controlling the narrative, stating his case, and it truly looked like a deal was on the horizon. And I talk about these butterfly effect moments. And I, I just I try to wrap my head around if George Steinbrenner had ever bought the Cleveland Indians. And I'm gonna tell you, I think George Steinbrenner would be successful anywhere. I don't think it was just because it was New York. I think he would have been successful in any anything that he would have wanted up doing. And I also think it would have been kind of interesting to watch free agency be controlled by uh, a Midwest team instead of an East Coast powerhouse like New York City. Incredible butterfly effect moment there. But the carpet gets pulled from under George's feet at the last moment when Stover sells uh, to Steinbrenner's friend, Nick Miletti who would, again, own the Cavs by the year's end. And Milani admitted he bought both teams in like this financial installment plan. And it took years for Vernon Stover to get paid off. So, George packs his shit, goes back to running his shipping empire, convinced he may have missed his last shot, his last great shot. He does kick the tires on purchasing the Detroit Tigers, but he finds the math on the investment it's lacking. It doesn't make sense for him. In 1973, Steinbrenner buys 11% of the Chicago Bulls. He would eventually sell his shares to Jerry Reinsdorf. Another butterfly effect moment. Can, can you imagine if the boss heard the Chicago Bulls? But his old friend and Indians GM, Gabe Paul, he meets Steinbrenner for lunch one day. And he tells him that a little bird told him that CBS was interested in selling the New York Yankees. Now, Steinbrenner had always been a diehard Indians fan for for all his life. And he dreamed of being the hometown kid, owning them, and bringing world titles to the home city. You know, the, the hometown hero, right? But George also recalled how uh, one, one time his father took him to a game at Municipal Stadium. The Yankees were playing the Indians. And usually when his dad would take him, they would always boo the opposing team. But he said that this one time, uh, his father said, we don't boo the Yankees. We don't like them, but we don't boo them. We respect them, and they're winners. So, George did have, like, this appreciation for the Bombers. Now, the Yankees, at this time, they're a crumbling empire. They have a horrible infrastructure. They're second fiddle in the city to the New York Mets, who, you know, they're on their way to their second World Series in five years, in 1973. They were bought in 1967 by CBS television, As the dynastic teams of the 20s through the 50s were getting smaller and smaller in the rearview mirror. And CBS began to treat the franchise like it was like this, I don't know, like a bad rerun that that they would hide on Sundays. The Yankees were losing money. (laughs) And to be fair, they were actually uh, tarnishing the CBS Tiffany Network brand. CBS Network chairman Bill Paley was receptive to selling the team to the vice president of CBS, Mike Burke, as long as Burke had investors in cash. So it was Gabe Paul who knew that Stouffer had made a foolish error by not selling the tribe to George, and it was now Gabe Paul connecting the dots between CBS and Steinbrenner. So he asked Steinbrenner, he's like, the Yankees are for sale. Are you interested? And of course, we all know Steinbrenner said, hell yeah, to this. And now history is set in motion. Steinbrenner, Mike, Bur- Mike Burke, they headed an ownership with partners, uh, John DeLorean, the car engineer, Nelson Bunker Hunt, the brother of Kansas City Chiefs owner, Lamar. And the deal went relatively quick and painless. As CBS could tell that George had the money, he was serious. And on January 3rd, 1973, George is introduced at a news conference by CBS as the new owner of the New York Yankees. CBS had bought the Yankees for $13.2 million in 1964, which in today's economy comes out to $107.6 million. The official price tag for George was going to end up $8.8 million, or about $71.8 million in today's economy after inflation considerations. And for years it had been reported that George bought the Yankees for $10 million. But he revealed before his death that CBS, they bought the garages back off of George for $1.2 million, making the total $8.8 million. And I think George's initial investment was around $168,000. And just wrap your head around that. That team is worth 5.65 billion today, folks. Billion with a B. He paid 8.8 million for it. It might be one of the greatest investments in American history. It's not quite up there with the Dutch buying Manhattan for $24 worth of beans and trinkets. Or Russia selling the United States, you know, Alaska for two cents an acre. But, look, it certainly ranks with the Louisiana Purchase, for crying out loud. I mean, you could make an argument. It's got to be one of the greatest investments in American history. The stadium, as part of the deal, built in 1923, uh, was set to close for $100 million in renovation upgrades, so... He's paid $8.8 million for this team in New York City. He's getting Yankee Stadium, which is already under $100 million in uh, renovation construction. What a deal. And retrospect, retrospect, there is a sense of irony and certainly comedy as Steinbrenner took the microphone and, and, <laughs> and he let the New York press know that he would not be a hands-on owner. He was going to go back to Cleveland to build ships. <laughs> he's a pisser. We, I mean, we now know without the help of Murray, Murray Povich that those uh, statements were a lie. By April, Burke, he's out. He's whacked. He's done. The first free front office casualty Of the Steinbrenner era. And. Burke was out because. I mean well. I gotta think there's nothing more limited. Than being a limited partner. With George fucking Steinbrenner. And the two would clash. And it was obvious. That the boss was too big a personality for Burke. And he would never have any true credibility. Or role in that organization. Meanwhile. Back in Washington D.C., shit's about to hit the fan. The Washington Star newspaper discovered discrepancies and political aberrations in donations by George Georgia Shipping Company to the committee to reelect the president, better known as the infamous Richard Nixon creep list which we know know now that that was basically a slush fund for the Watergate burglars. We know that now from history. And to keep these wheels greased for his company's benefit, uh, George engaged in the illegal act of straw donations. He would cut bonus checks to employees and then order them to be donated to CREEP in various increments, to avoid donation limits. In 1974, he pleads guilty to felony charges of making illegal campaign contributions. Commissioner Bowie Kuhn suspends him for two years, but he would reduce it to 15 months. And George would be reinstated on opening day 1976 in a newly renovated Yankee Stadium. And it should also be noted that President Reagan would grant George a pardon one of the last acts he did as a president. A dawn of a new era is starting to hit the baseball universe. Arbitrator Peter Seitz at the end of the 1975 uh, shutdown, uh, at the end of the 1975 season, he uh, shot down the reserve clause that MLB had lived under since its infancy. And this basically opens the door to free agency. And honestly, George intended to be a player in the new roles. Going out and acquiring A's ace, Catfish Hunter, who had been cut by the Oakland A's after his Cy Young year, He signed him to a five-year, $3.75 million deal, which is equivalent today to about $19.5 million. Uh, One major change that Catfish learned really, really quick upon going to New York was a strict facial hair policy that exists today. Closed crop haircuts, no beards, limit on the mustaches, and it was funny because the boss's first time in his box, not knowing his players yet, he actually sat in his box seats and wrote down the uniform numbers of the guys who needed haircuts. Uh, all told, I think he went up to Catfish, Monson, Penelo, Oscar Gamble. Well, he, he definitely needed a haircut. And he told them all, you know, cut your fucking hair. And look, here's the thing with the hair policy. This is the way it is. You're getting paid a lot of money to perform on the big stage. And if you don't like it, you don't have to come there and pay and take the money. And if the players' union ain't woofing about it, then I don't really see the problem. If the Yankees want to have that as their policy and the players are okay with it, so be it. I mean, on some level, it fits them. It kind of makes them look like a bunch of narcs, but it fits what the Yankees are, that corporate baseball team. And Steinbrenner once said, I have nothing against long hair per se, but I'm trying to instill discipline and pride, and I feel that those are important attributes for all athletes. And it's important to note that George had always had cropped hair, uh, cropped haircut, no facial, and that Mike Burke had long, wavy locks that Steinbrenner used to always complain about and said they looked unprofessional. There have been some uproar over the policy over the years, most notably from Don Mattingly during the 80s. But like I said, for the most part, the players who signed with them for some of the most lucrative contracts around, they, they understand the rule going in. Catfish says he didn't care because George did something that former uh, owner of his, Charlie O'Finley, never did, and that was uh, pay a stars like fucking stars. So Catfish didn't care. and most players don't care once they get there and they see those paychecks. Now, whether it was the new hair policy, newly renovated Yankee Stadium, Billy Martin in the second go-around with the team, this Yankees team was on fire. Steinbrenner's fellow Ohio native catcher Thurman Munson impressed the boss with his leadership, great, an MVP award so much that he made him the captain, the first player to be named that since Lou Gehrig in the 1930s. The Yankees got all-star seasons out of outfielder Mickey Rivers, second baseman Willie Randolph, first baseman Chris Chambliss, and Catfish. Perhaps coincidentally, but no, nah, not really. Old friend and GM for the uh, cash Strap tribe, Gabe Paul. Now listen to this. He sends first baseman Chris Chambliss and Craig Metals to New York before he left Cleveland and joined the Yankees' front office. Huh? That, that sounds a little sketchy, right? I mean, that's, that could be collusive behavior, if you ask me. Both of those players would go on to play pivotal postseason baseball for the Yankees. The Yankees won the ALEs for the first time since its establishment in 1969. They would go on to beat the Kansas City Royals. And, yeah, they were always beating the freaking Royals. And that was punctuated by Chambliss' walk-off dong in Game 5 of that ALCS. Now, the Reds swept the Yankees in the World Series, but the writing was on the wall. These are two teams going in totally opposite directions. And after two World Series titles, four pennants, Five NLS titles, the Reds were unable and not willing to break the bank in the new free agency game. So, the big red machine begins to fade away, as it was pretty much left on the side of the road to rust. Parts begin to age, and the ones that were still pretty good, they got sold off. And stay tuned, folks. We're definitely got a Big Red Machine show coming. I believe that's about a month from now or so. Steinbrenner, though, he's still all in. He's smarted for being swept in the series. And he goes out and he signs Oriole, right fielder, Reggie Jackson to a five-year, $2.96 million deal, which was absurd at that time. That's about $13.76 million in today's economy. And I'm not going to do every season of George's role. I'm not even going to zero in on too much about the ego-driven feud between George and manager Billy Martin, who he would hire and fire five times, uh, that the press knows of. I'm sure there were many times in the office that George probably fired him, you know, and then they went to lunch and they, they were okay after that. I truly think that Billy and George, they deserve their own show. So I'm sure I'll be tackling their relationship at some point here on Backwards K. 1977, the summer of Sam in New York. The Bombers limped out of the gate. Uh, This was a dysfunctional team if I've ever seen one. The relationship dynamics between Reggie Jackson, Billy Martin, and George uh, George Steinbrenner At times, uh, it was messy, (laughs) as quotes were being uh, leaked to the the New York press. The Yankees were five games back as of August 7. They caught fire. They won 27 of their last 30 games to take the ALEs crown for the second year in a row. And once again, they would beat the crap out of Kansas City Royals and the ALCS And that set up a World Series matchup with the Dodgers, their hated rivals from the 40s and 50s. The Yankees were going to win that series behind the free agent, higher power bat of Reggie Jackson. Much like the 1971 World Series introduced Roberto Clemente to the rest of baseball. Uh, I really feel like the 77 World Series did kind of the same deal for Reggie Jackson. Reggie Jackson was... You know, he was very well known, but once he got to, to New York, I mean, it just it got amped up to a whole nother level. And he's now being called Mr. October because of his exploits on the big stage. The Yankees won the series in six games, culminating with Reggie Jackson. I mean, what can you say? Three different pitches, three home runs, one pitch from each pitcher. Uh, Bert Hooten, Charlie Huff, Lee Elias, one pitch, bang, one pitch, bang, one pitch, bang. I mean, unfrickin' believable. I'm a six-year-old kid watching this. I'm. This is the most unbelievable thing I've ever seen. I also know at some point I'm going to be doing a show on some of the best game sixes in the history of baseball. You stick with me, kid. I'm going to bring all of it to you. Now, if you thought that 1977 was filled with drama, then George Steinbrenner basically said, hold my beer in 1978. Billy Martin was forced to resign mid-season when he said, one's a liar, talking about Reggie, and one's a convict," referring to George, in a press conference interview. So they replaced Billy with Bob Lemon, who was a uh, polar opposite of Martin in both uh, temperament and alcohol consumption. And the team seemed to accept his easygoing demeanor, and they roared back from a 10-game deficit to force a tiebreaker versus the Red Sox, and that's the Bucky freaking Dent game. I'm sure we'll be doing a show on that. You know, the one where Bucky freaking Den, he he made all the Boston, you know, cry in their beers. That famous blast over the monster. Once again, the Yankees meet KC in the ALCS, and once again, they choke him out. Poor KC. I mean, they're like the the, the twins of the A's nowadays. Poor KC. They did, at least they did win a World Series at some point here. And George never forgave uh, George Brett for that. Funny, funny story. I mean, George Brett's like, Jesus, you guys used to beat us all the time. Can't we have one? And George Steinbrenner literally looked at George, George Brett and said, No. I want them all. But after dismantling the Royals in this championship series, they would once again beat the Dodgers... For their first back-to-back crown since 1961-62. Prior to the 1981 season, Steinbrenner is continuing his spending ways. He inks David Winfield to a historic 10-year contract for a $23 million, which in today's dollar amount would be equivalent to $63.36 million. This would also prove to be Reggie uh, Jackson's swan song and pinstripes. And now with the taste of championship blood in his mouth, the boss is a ravenous shark. That season, the Yankees came out hot. They went first before labor strife interrupted the season in June. They finished fifth in the second half when play resumed in August. In a revampo, uh season, New York dispatched the Brewers. Billy Martin, the A's, were waiting for them in the ALCS, and Any thought of uh, revenge by Billy was smashed as the Yankees beat the A's to advance to their third World Series appearance against the Dodgers in five years. This time, though, the Dodgers finally beat the Yankees and George lets Mr. October go, a move he would regret throughout his ownership. boss's work ethic, I mean, from my my research, it's just unparalleled to any other owner in sports. For example, when the last out of the season is recorded, whether it's a World Series victory, a World Series loss, a playoff, a regular season loss, Mr. Steinbrenner expects his army of front office types, scouts, coaches, advisors, to be at the office the next morning thinking about how do the Yankees get better next year. When the boss bought the Yankees in 1973, New York had gone eight years without making it to the postseason, and it would extend another three years under George until the Yankees finally busted through and played against Cincinnati. But he had come from Cleveland, a virtual nobody with deep pockets, And he had restored the glory of the Yankees to their mythos of the past. Starting in 1982, though, the Yankees would go 13 years before getting back to the postseason. It was an era marred by bad free agent signings, inconsistencies in the, uh, the manager's position, front office drama, and... I was looking at some of these trades here that they made during that time. Just awful. They traded a young Willie McGee for a right-handed pitcher, Billy Sykes, from the Cardinals. A young Fred McGriff to Toronto for Dale Murray. A young Al Leiter to Toronto for Jesse Barfield. A young Jay Buhner to Seattle for Ken Phelps. So you're seeing this pattern here where... He is this rabbit shark, and he wants to win every single year. But, you know, one of Steinbrenner's weaknesses during the 80s was just getting rid of these young players before they had a chance to grow. From 1973 to 1996, the Yankees changed managers 20 times in 23 years. They also had 13 publicity advisors. He fired Billy Martin five times. Look, he fired Yogi Berra, y'all. I mean, who the hell fires Yogi in New York City? He got a Hall of Fame resume, won pennants in both leagues with the Mets and the Yankees. 16 games in the 1985 and he fires Yogi. And he embarrassed that proud Yankee. During the late, you know, mid to late 80s, the Yankees were coming up short in the standings. And his shipping company was on thin ice. It was hemorrhaging money as the Reagan administration ended the subsidies that George had fought so hard for during the Nixon administration And AMSHIP would file for bankruptcy in 1993. And no matter what moves the boss made, nothing produced winning results. And he turned his anger and his focus onto Dave Winfield, and he began scapegoating the future Hall of Famer. Steinbrenner, the media-savvy dude that he is, he's controlling the narrative with the press Derisively chiding him, calling him Mr. May in a blatant tongue in cheek reference to Mr. October, Reggie Jackson. Saying, I need players in here who can play o- who are Mr. October, not Mr. May. George is pissed off. He's paying his high salaries and he's not getting desired results. He's trading all the young talent and he begins to figure out. How can you get the hell out of paying paying Winfield's deal? Winfield and his 10-year contract had a provision in the deal that demanded George to make a $100,000 donation to his charitable foundation every year of the contract. But George, who, let's face it, probably wouldn't have cared about paying the stipend if Winfield was, uh, you know, leading New York to World Series titles. He was suspicious that the money and the foundation was being mismanaged. So after issuing lawsuits to one another, uh, George takes it to another level, and he pays mob-connected gambler Howard Spear $40,000 to dig up dirt and embarrassing information that he could possibly be able to use against this star outfielder. And when Commissioner Faye Vincent got word of this, he quickly laid down the hammer and he suspended the boss for two years. And Steinbrenner actually asked for a lifetime ban instead because he wanted to keep his position as VP of the U.S. Olympic Committee. Commissioner Vincent acquiesced. And the spoiled Yankees fans who were, you know, they feel like it's their right every year. They, they feel like it's their right to win the World Series every year. It's their birthright. Well, they were jubilant in the game versus the Tigers when the news of his band became public. And they began chanting, no more George, no more George. Now, Steinbrenner was reinstated by Vincent in 1993. Ironically, uh, Fay Vincent would be thrown overboard. That's another story for another podcast. When George returned, the team on the field was much better than his high-spending patchwork attempts in the 80s. I mean... Basically released by these autocratic chains, and you know the Mercurial, George Steinbrenner, Gene Stick Michaels had done for Jimmy Key, Paul O'Neill. He had this young Bernie Williams kid, and since since uh, center field, he's replaced Roberto Kelly. The core four of Derek Jeter, Jorge Posada, Andy Pettit, and Mariano Rivera are coming or on their arrival soon. They had a dynamic manager in Buck Showalter. And really, the one thing that Stick Michaels did much differently than Steinbrenner is he kept his young talent. He let guys like Bernie come up and play and have a little struggle, and he stuck with them. And that's the one thing. If there's a flaw in Steinbrenner's game, He's not the most patient dude. Sometimes you just got to let these young guys go. And the core four was a driving force for the Yankees' resurrection. However, at the end of the 95 season, that saw the Yankees lose to the Seattle Mariners in a thriller uh, Edgar Martinez walk-off base hit. Show Walker would turn down a two-year extension offered under the guise of him firing his hitting coach, Rick Down. So, the boss accepted his resignation. And there was no manager in wait for the Yankees in Steinbrenner. So, Steinbrenner's got to make his first decision back. With all the talent the Yankees were promoting... He couldn't go to Billy Martin well anymore. That dried up when uh, Billy had his fateful 1989 car accident. Davey Johnson was out there. Tony Russa's out there. But George decided to go with the baseball lifer, Joe Torre. And that pick, in baseball vernacular, was a grand slam. And although the move was uh, derided by the baseball media geniuses at the time... The results were seen almost immediately. The team won four World Series in the next five years, as well as 10 Division of Crowns in 11 years. And with the Yankees back in their winning ways, Steinbrenner broke bread, broke bread and made peace with, you know, the Yogi's and Lou Pinellas and the Reggie Jacksons. He was there for the final days of guys like Joe DiMaggio, and catfish hunter. Um, Steinbrenner is a very giving person. He cares about the lowliest Yankee employee. People would have sick parents. They would have medical problems. He was there to help. He didn't care if you were an usher. If he found out you needed help, he was a genuine giving man. After passing out at Browns quarterback legends Otto Graham's funeral in 2003, just seemed less and less in public. In 2007, he ceded most of his day-to-day operations to his sons, Hal and Hank, and now his grandfather had done to his dad what he did for them. And that was passing the family legacy down. I mean, what an amazing story arc of this guy. And I mean, he had the stadium named after him. I mean, if the old Yankee Stadium was the house that Ruth built, the new stadium is certainly the house that George built. Uh, he brought in the Yes Network. In 2014, their family we- uh, wealth was at $8.8 billion. They're the 46th, uh, I'm sorry, they're the fourth richest family in America. And I just want to tell you that this was an absolute amazing, amazing research I have the utmost respect for him as someone who you know was a fan of a rival team you know you, you, you don't really have all this inside knowledge about him but I gotta tell you just an amazing person so I think we're gonna end it right there I want to thank everyone in the audience for tuning in I hope you were uh, derived as much pleasure listening as I did presenting There are so many books out there about George on YouTube, so I would suggest follow that white rabbit into the hole because he is worth the research. Uh, Like I said, as a fan of a rival team, I I just have a newfound respect for the man. And you know, I had a it it was really, it was a great research. So uh, if you enjoyed it, I hope you enjoyed it. Come back again. Please remember to like, comment, subscribe, follow all that jazz. You can email me at backwardskpod at gmail.com. And look, I got Shohei Otani coming next. The Japanese big group. But that's another pod. I'm sorry, that's another story for another pod. So parents, I say this every week. If you see your kid... And he or she is sitting on the couch, and they're looking bored. By all means, take them outside and play a game of catch. Thank y'all for coming out. God bless, and good night. The best way to tell. George, does the have an obligation to make a statement here? Well, oh, I don't know. I think Dr. Beauty will react to Miles, certainly. He'll study it carefully, and then I think he'll see what I saw, and hopefully he will react. Now, he may react by saying he wants Peter and Angelos and I to go three rounds and settle it. Then I'm ready. I'm working out three days a week. (laughs) The best way...